I'd like to read from John's gospel, chapter one. This is the calling of Jesus of his own disciples. It says in verse thirty five, again, the next day, John, this is the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what is it that you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour. That's either 10 o'clock in the morning, if you're reckoning uh, Roman time, or four o'clock in the afternoon, if you're reckoning Jewish time. In verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you're Simon. The son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas or Kephas, which is translated a stone in verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you're going to see greater things than these? And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Are you familiar with a little poem? It, I was reminded of it this week in particular because of my brother's accident and young Eddie Taylor. It goes like this. The clock of life is wound but once. And no man has the power. To tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. Even in the brief moments that I read that poem, 39 people were jettisoned into eternity. It's my understanding that every hour for those who do this kind of mathematics, 5,417 souls on average pass into eternity and go to meet their maker. 
And I'm reminded once again of the brevity and just how fragile life really is. And so I wanted to talk with you about what it means to know the Lord and the power of personal testimony. You see, many people feel paralyzed in talking to people about their faith in Jesus Christ. And some people assume it's just the pastor's job or it's the full time Christian workers responsibility to preach the gospel or share the message of Jesus Christ. But before leaving, before ascending into heaven, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And he said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, go. Only under the most unusual of circumstances should we interpret that to remain stay. So I want to talk to you about the power of your testimony and my testimony to bring people to Jesus. And in this section of scripture, we learn several things about the witness of John the Baptist. We also see John's account of Jesus call to his first disciples. We can ask and answer questions like, what does it mean to be a credible witness? How can you share your testimony in a way that makes sense and will encourage people to at least consider the claims of Christ? There are, of course, a lot of reasons why people give for not sharing their faith. They suggest that. How do I guide the discussion on the subject of Jesus? How can I overcome my fear of, of not be, of being rejected or not being accepted and be thought weird? Well, the way that I dealt with that is just get over it. You are weird. How do I overcome my fear about talking about Jesus Christ? And I think that perhaps the most fundamental way is to have that fear become overwhelmed with the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God. In other words, perfect love casts out fear. You begin to care about other people more than you care about yourself. In verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist and the two disciples that he's talking about. We have a clue of who they are. In verse 40, it says one of the two who heard John speak was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. But who was the other disciple? The text doesn't tell us. But I'm going to suggest to you that I suspect it was John, the beloved. It was John, the apostle. It's John, the author of this book and the story that we're reading. And I suspect that they're hanging out with one another. And I'm also suspect that they were very young. We know that John, the apostle, was very young because he outlives all the rest of the apostles. He will die at a very late age. John, the beloved, was the youngest apostle, and he may have been allowed to leave home and enter into the regimen of rigorous discipleship sometime after his bar mitzvah, where he becomes accountable to the law and to the prophets. I suspect John and Andrew were close in age because teenagers have a tendency to hang out with each other. 
And I'm going to suspect also that he hears John the Apostle, or excuse me, John the Baptist preach. In verse 15, it says, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This is he whom I said would come after me, who's preferred before me, in verse 15. He also says, looking at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. And this would have been a message that would have been familiar to each and every young Jewish boy. There are three things that I want to draw your attention to from this passage. The first is the messenger, John. He's preaching. In this passage of scripture, people come to Jesus, by the way, in three different ways. The first is preaching. The second is personal evangelism. The third, Jesus himself shows up. Peter found Christ through the personal work of his brother Andrew. The third, again, Jesus himself draws people to himself. Philip is called by Christ personally, and it, and it becomes a, a type and a picture of all of our experience. By the way, let's just do a little experiment here. How many of you came to Christ because you heard a preacher preach a message and you responded to that message. Raise your hand. Look around you for just a moment. How many of you came to Christ because someone loved you and cared about you and they presented the gospel to you and you responded to the gospel because of personal evangelism? Raise your hand. Look around you again. The third way is the hard headed way. The third way is for the person who's reluctant to hear the gospel and reluctant to even embrace personal evangelism. And God himself, through the person of Jesus Christ, showed up in your bedroom or showed up in your cell or showed up in that dark and difficult moment and gave you an ultimatum and said, you need to get right with God. Because you're pushing the envelope. Who would dare raise their hand? Yeah, look around you. There are a few of you. I can't think of any other way that a person comes to Christ. John is the preacher, but he's also the witness. And as he preaches, John, I believe the apostle and Andrew hear this message. And there are at least three things that you have to have in order to be a credible or believable witness. Number one, you have to have a knowledge of the facts. Number two, you have to morally be above reproach. And number three, you have to have a reputation for honesty. And John had all three. He had a personal contact with Christ. And by the way, John has nothing to gain and everything to lose by witnessing for Christ. And he will, in fact, suffer and die. There's no evidence that he lied. John has knowledge of the facts. Look at his message. Behold the Lamb of God. Isn't that the shortest sermon you've ever heard? Behold the Lamb of God. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Earlier, John preached a longer version of this message in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John's message. 
That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in a way, that message is the sum and the substance of the whole message that's given in the Old Testament from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And as you march forward into the text, the reoccurring theme is that blood must be spilt and atonement must be made. The question in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22, is where's the lamb? And in the four gospels, the emphasis is behold the lamb. Here he is. And after you've trusted him, you sing in a heavenly choir according to the book of Revelation chapter 5. And one day all of the saints will sing, worthy is the lamb. There were many lambs slain as sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the unique lamb. The blood of lambs slain in the tabernacle or the temple merely covered sin according to Hebrews chapter 10. But Jesus' blood takes away sin. And the lambs offered in the Old Testament were for Israel alone. But Jesus dies for the entire world. As a matter of fact, Jesus and the New Testament writers describing the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 verse 15 said, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, think about it. John knew the facts. John wanted to share them with a clear conscience. And that becomes an insight for each and every one of you. Because in order to share the gospel, you have to know the gospel. You have to have a knowledge of the facts and a willingness to share those facts. And guess what? You're going to need a certain measure of credibility. By the way, do you have a reputation for honesty? When people listen to you speak, do they go, wow, he speaks like someone who actually seems to know what he's talking about. I read a sign in a Christian bookstore. It said, people may not believe everything you say, but they will believe everything you do. I think that that's true. In Luke chapter one, verse 17 Describing John the Baptist, it said he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John knew the facts about Jesus. John was morally above reproach. By the way, the Baptist is mentioned some 89 times in the Bible. And there's a reason why. Because he had the special privilege of introducing the nation of Israel to Jesus. You might be given that special privilege of introducing someone to Jesus. And it is a special privilege. John was willing to tell the truth. Even if it was going to cost him in Matthew eleven eleven, it says, assuredly, this is Jesus speaking. He said, among those born of women, there's never risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of, of heaven is greater than he. 
John was willing to tell the truth, even if it cost him freedom and comfort. And that's exactly what it would do because he would lose his life. The true witness has to have the proper motive. And John's motive is revealed in John chapter three, verse 30, where he says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He was a rock star in his day. Every young Jewish man would have known that the Lamb of God speaks of sacrifice and death. Do you remember when you first understood about death? Do you remember when it became painfully aware that people die, that things happen, that things living die? I think that I became aware of this when I was about nine and a half years old, maybe close to ten. I had a dog that was given to me when I was in kindergarten by my grandpa. Called him Buster. And the dog followed me wherever I would go. I mean, I lived in the middle of the Mojave Desert. There's not a whole lot to do. I'm the oldest of five children, and so um, this dog was sort of my constant companion. He would go with me wherever I would go. And I'm ashamed to say this, but I loved this dog. And one day, when I was about nine and a half years old, I asked my mother if I could ride my bike. And unlike you, who probably obeyed your mother and father in every single fashion all of the time, I, my, my mother said, look, you can ride your bike, but remember the dog's going to follow you, so you have to stay off the main road where the traffic is. And so I said, sure, mom. And then I got on our little dirt road that led to the main road. And I found myself bicycling on the busiest part of this desert community where I lived in rebellion and disobedience to my mom. I went where I shouldn't have gone. And the dog followed me and a car just barely missed hitting the dog. And then the next car came and ran him over. And he was hurt bad. There was blood coming out of his nose and out of his mouth and out of his eyes. And I'm a little boy with my bike and my dog. And a good Samaritan pulls over. And opens up the trunk. There was a white sheet. Placed it on my lap, placed the dog on my lap asked me for directions to my house, threw the bike in the trunk, and we drove to my house. And I come home. And we live in the middle of nowhere. There's no veterinarians. There's no access to help. And my stepfather takes the dog, takes a rifle, shoots the dog, and my mother orders me into the bathroom. To wash the blood off of my body. I'm laying in the tub. And the blood comes off. And I realize something horrible has happened. And it's my fault. You see, in order to understand the nature 
of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. You have to understand the penalty of death and how severe that it is. There's many things that we could look at, but there's just a few things that I want to just point out to you as we go along in the text. And one is you have to have the assurance of God's work in your life. And number two, you have to have the realization of personal sin. And number three, you have to surrender to God. And number four, spend time with Jesus. And number five, be grounded in the great truths of Scripture. And number six, be planted in order to bear fruit. And number seven, you have to have a willingness to work hard. And number eight, everything has to be done in love. Now, the assurance of God's work in your life is exactly what happens in the text. John points people to Jesus and we have to do exactly the same thing. And in order to point people to Jesus, you have to have the assurance of God's work of love in your own life. In order to experience the power of personal testimony, you have to have a testimony, don't you? That makes sense to you. And so you have to ask and answer the question, are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? Do you have a testimony? And I remember when people would ask me that, are you saved? And I would say, saved from what? What are you talking about? Why saved from sin? And I thought, what a ridiculous thing to ask. My mother and father divorced when I was very, very young, three years old. My mother lived in New Orleans. She sold what miserable furniture we had in our home. She bought a bus ticket to go to Southern California to reunite with my grandma and my grandpa. But she only had enough money to get to Texas from Louisiana, which is right next door. And so you can imagine, here's my mother with me and my brand new baby brother, the one who I told you about was just in a motorcycle accident. And so here's this woman with two kids on a train trying to get across the country. And one of the first memories of my life is I remember the ticket guy coming down the, the, the counter going, tickets, please, tickets, please. This is back in, in the 50s when they still asked you for your tickets. Tickets, please. And my mother looked at the conductor and burst into tears because she didn't have a ticket. And the conductor felt sorry for this poor woman with two kids and let us ride to New Mexico. And then the people in New Mexico felt sorry for us and let us ride to Arizona. And the people in Arizona felt sorry for us and let us ride to this miserable desert. The desert that I grew up in and arrived at was called Apple Valley. Some of you are old enough to remember Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. But they were the famous people who lived in town, and it was pretty much Roy and us and the desert. And I wasn't too keen on the desert. But I did what kids do in the desert, a whole lot of nothing. And when you're surrounded by rocks and Joshua trees and critters, you... Become familiar with them. And I went to junior high and high school. But because of my life and my circumstances, I had an animosity, an anger that welled up inside of me. I think I was bitter and angry over the fact that my parents had gotten a divorce. I didn't understand why people got a divorce. I didn't understand any of those things. And I grew up. 
And because my mother was 15 years old when she conceived me and 16 years old when she had me, she had five children before she was 23 years of age. She dropped out of school, and the only way that she could make ends meet was to get a job as a, as a waitress. And my brother and I would watch as she carefully buried the tips, and we would go and dig them up and steal the money in order to buy ice cream for ourselves. So our life of crime began very early on. But in high school, and some of you know, I was voted most likely to go to hell. My brother Tony, who was in the motorcycle accident, voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. We put the dysfunction in dysfunctional. We were a troubled family. But people started witnessing to me and sharing with me about Christ. And one person in particular, his name is David McCachran. He was the captain of the basketball team, and he invited me to go to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and he sweetened the pot with cheerleaders. He said, hey, would you like to go to a concert? And I remember going, thinking, I don't want to go to a concert. And I, I said, well, maybe. He goes, look, I'll buy you dinner, and we'll bring these two cheerleaders. And again, I said, okay, I'll do it. Because there was only one thing I liked more than free food, and that was cheerleaders. <laughs> so he invites me to go to a concert at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I remember, we live in the desert, so it's about a two-hour drive. But I remember despising Christians and Christianity. So I thought that I would ask him all kinds of questions and that I would stump him and that that he wouldn't find the answer. And that I could show what a ridiculous person he was and what a ridiculous belief Jesus is. And so he I basically said, tell me about all. Are you going to tell me that you're the only right way? And, and this guy, of course, is clueless and he's driving. He goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. I was looking for an argument. I want to know about the problem of suffering. I want to know about the problem of pain. I want to know about Muslims. I want to know about Buddhists. I want to know about reincarnation. Whatever I would ask him, he would just look at me and he would say, I don't know. But you'll see. And I got so frustrated and I got so angry because I wanted to get into an argument and win the argument. And this person had no Reason to argue. God put the perfect person in my life. A person who would just smile really big and say, you'll see. We got to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and there was a band playing and there was an auditorium. It was a tent filled with about 2000 young people. And there was this this young man who was preaching. He had really curly, curly hair and glasses and suspenders. And I thought, great. And this guy starts preaching from John chapter 11. You know the story of Lazarus. How Jesus is gone for several days and, and Lazarus gets sick and he finally dies. And four days after he's dead, um, Jesus and the disciples show up and they are mourning and wailing and weeping. And in John chapter 11, as he told the story... 
He talked about this person being dead in the tomb and he quotes the scripture, how Mary comes to him and and says, look, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says in verse 15, I'm glad that you so that you would believe. Nevertheless, let's go to him. And then he he goes and Mary cries out and says, look, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus says those words, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking to myself, this is crazy. And then he said, roll away the stone. And in the old King James, it says, Mary responds and says, but Lord, he stinketh. The body had already started to decompose. And I heard a voice whisper inside of my own heart. You stinketh. And I went, what? What? You know, it's your high school. Sometimes there's personal hygiene issues. You stink it. And I knew what the voice meant. There was something rotten. There was something corrupt. There was something wicked. There was something desperately wrong inside of my life. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And you know the story, how he hops out of the tomb. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, If Jesus can bring a dead body back to life. I wonder if he could bring my dead heart, my dead soul, my wickedness. I wonder if he can do something for me. And the preacher said, you're probably thinking if he could do this for you. (laughs) And he said. If you'd like to experience forgiveness of sin, if you would like to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, come forward. Now, remember, there's 2000 people. I think I forgot to tell you in the story. I ditched David and I ditched the cheerleaders because I was so angry. And so I got lost in the crowd. But I was thinking I don't want to hitchhike all the way back to Apple Valley. So I'll stay and I'll get a ride. And I'm hearing this message. And there's thousand people in here. And three people came forward to receive Christ as their savior that night. I was one of them. I walked forward. And I remember the preacher looking at me completely disappointed. And I thought to myself, how does this guy know me? (laughs) And the reason why he was so completely disappointed, because he was used to hundreds of young people responding to the message of salvation. And so for from his perspective, only three people coming to Christ was like, it's a bust. It's like, why did we turn on the lights? It was a big, fat, stinking waste of time. But I didn't care because, you know what? I knew that I needed hope and life. And I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior that night. And I went home. And I shared Christ with my best friend. One week after I got saved, 
I probably had the most important conversation of my entire life. You know, I, I have a great privilege. I'm the pastor of this church. I've served Christ now for 40 years. I've been on the radio for many years. I've been on television. You, I, I've been at great fit places and I've done great things all over the world. But maybe the most important conversation I ever had was one week after I got saved with my best friend. He had a crush on my sister, so he would come over and he would want to get high. And I started telling him about what happened to me. I didn't know everything about everything, but I knew that Jesus Christ was the Lord and that he could save you. And my friend is very, very tall. He is about six foot five. And you know, I'm very tall for an Italian person, but much shorter than that. And he goes in my room and he throws me up against the wall and he says, you're not even a good Catholic. And he was right. And I said, you're right. But I know that Jesus Christ is real and I know that he can save you. And I know that if you'll confess him as Lord, he can change you, too. By the way, my friend's name was Skip Heitzig. He became a Christian. In 1987, we went out to Albuquerque to plant a church. Our church became the fastest growing church in America. I want you to think about this. If Christianity were Amway, I would be a diamond dealer. (laughs) You have to have the assurance of God's work in your life. But something has changed. Something has happened to you. In verse 38, Jesus' first question to John was, what are you looking for? And I want you to think about that for just a moment, because in verse 38, I'm going to suggest to you that John, the apostle, is recording the first words that he ever remembered hearing from Jesus. And if you look in John's gospel, it's black letters, black letters, black letters. The first red letter appears in verse 38 because these are the first words that John remembered hearing. What are you looking for? Are you looking for someone who will overthrow the government? Are you looking for someone to throw off the yoke of oppression? But Jesus asks the question, what are you looking for? They, I'm going to suggest to you, Andrew and John said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, where are you staying? We don't know what to say. We, we just, where, where are you staying? And you would think that at this point that Jesus would say, you know, I have a little apostolic bungalow near the shore of Galilee. He doesn't. He says, come And see, often that's exactly what Jesus will do. He'll say, you come and check it out yourself. There also has to be the realization of personal sin. You won't want to do the will of God on your your own. You won't have the ability to effectively witness and share Jesus apart from the resources of God. In verses 45 through 51, remember what it says? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, and Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. Now think about that for just a moment. It's he repeats in verse 39 exactly what Jesus said to Andrew and John. Come and see. 
When, my, when I was asking this person about all of my different questions and I wanted answers to all of life problems, this person had enough sense to say, I don't know everything about everything, but you come and you see. Carl Jung said the greatest neurosis of our time, the great plague that inhabits and indwells people is this pervading sense of emptiness. And even though you may not Say this, but you need to be able to understand that every single person apart from Christ is experiencing a dark and lonely and empty life. And you can, with confidence, confront them. Because saved people are different from unsaved people. Unsaved people are empty and hurt. And they want to know if life is worth living. As a matter of fact, with the realization of personal sin comes the reality that there's a savior. You know, in Genesis chapter 28, in verse 10 through 22, you probably know the story how Jacob went out from Beersheba and he headed for Haran. It says he came to a certain place. He stayed the night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones and he placed it as a pillow and he poured oil over it and he dreamed a dream. And you'll remember that he had a dream of heaven opening and a ladder came down and angels came down from heaven. And as the angels came down from heaven, Jacob awoke and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the place where the gate of heaven opened. And in verse 47, look what it says. Nathanael sees him and says, behold, an Israelite indeed, and in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I'm going to suggest to you, because I've been to Israel, there are fig trees everywhere. If you came to the Mojave Desert and you said, Gino, I saw you under the Joshua tree, I would go, I'm not impressed. Every kid who lives in the Mojave Desert will find himself under a Joshua tree at some point. But Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in, in, in whom there is no deceit or guile. And he says, how do you know me? And look what Jesus says. I saw you under the fig tree. It isn't the fig tree that's simply the important thing. It's what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. And you know what I think Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree? He was thinking about the Messiah. He was thinking about God's promises. He was thinking about whether or not, how do you have eternal life? How do you address the emptiness that's inside of you? What is real? How can I be certain that anything is real? And Jesus said, do you remember when you were under the fig tree? It could be. As if Jesus said to you, do you remember, do you remember those long and lonely nights? Do you remember when you sat in your bed and do you remember when you cried yourself to sleep? Do you remember crying out to God going, why am I here? What am I doing? Why in the world did you place me with this family? Why did you place me in these circumstances? What must I do to have eternal life? How can I get rid of the sin and the emptiness in my life? 
Imagine someone comes to you and begins to address those deep, dark issues of your life and says, guess what? There's an answer to those things. And Nathaniel responds with, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. The other thing you need to do is spend time with Jesus. We're going to backtrack just for a moment, but look at verse 39. It says, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. In other words, when Andrew shares Christ with his brother Peter, he has been following Jesus for less than 24 hours. So do you have to have an advanced degree or a seminary education in order to share Christ? The disciples stayed with Jesus that day. How much time do you need to spend with Jesus before you're comfortable telling someone else about Jesus? For Andrew, it was one day. I love Andrew. There's no book in the Bible by Andrew. There's no sermon recorded in the Bible from Andrew. But Andrew was willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. You see, Andrew may never do great things for God as human beings measure greatness. But he shares Christ. With his brother Peter. And Peter will become a powerful influence on the body of Christ. And the whole world will be a different world. Because Andrew shared Christ with his brother. Do you know the name of the person who led Billy Graham to Christ? Do you know who was responsible for Dwight Moody's conversion or Charles and John Wesley's entry into the ministry behind the conversion of great evangelists and pastors and leaders and faithful men and women are those who are called to be obedient. And you never know that the most important conversation that you will ever have is with the next person you meet. Because God might have great plans and purposes. The other is to be grounded in the great truths of the scripture. And what are those great truths? Remember, the the famous theologian Karl Barth was asked to recite the most profound truth he ever learned. And this man who was a noted intellectual simply responded, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. The person we need to know is Jesus. The great truths of the scripture would include his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atonement on the cross, his his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. You don't need to know a whole lot of information in order to share Christ. For me, the most compelling thing that I ever learned was the very first day I got saved. Jesus loves me. A living Christ can change me. Also, you need to be planted in order to bear fruit. You'll note that Andrew and John and Philip, they associate one another. They kept company with one another and also a willingness to do the hard work. Andrew goes out and he finds his brother. You can't accomplish this work just by thinking about it. In verse 41, he finds his brother Simon and he says, we found the Messiah. You can start with your family. That's what I did. 
the people closest to me. I shared Christ with my brother. He accepted the Lord. I shared Christ with my sister. He, she accepted the Lord. Three weeks after I, I accept the Lord, I'm elected student body president of my high school. And the first thing I do is start a Bible study on the campus. Based on what? Based on I knew that Jesus changed people's lives. I said, I don't know everything about everything, but we're going to read the gospel of John and we're going to try and understand it. And people ask question after question after question. And I did not have answer after answer. And you can imagine I spent the rest of my life answering people's questions. And now everything has to be done in love. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Your motives have to be pure. So what proof do I offer? I offer the proof of a changed life. That's what Andrew did. That's what Philip did. That's what Peter did. In verse 45, it says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I can offer the proof of my life. But guess what? Predictive prophecy proves Jesus's identity. The resurrection of Jesus proves his identity. In John's gospel, in chapter one, verses one through four, Jesus creates the world. In verses nine through 13, he gives men salvation. In verses 15 through 18, he reveals God. In verse 33, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In verse 42 and verse 47, he has intimate knowledge of the condition of human beings. In verse 29, he forgives sin. In verse Verse 50, he opens the way to heaven. I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what Nathaniel was reading. He was reading, he was reading from the book of Genesis about Jacob running for his life and placing his head on the pillow and the door of heaven opens and the ladder comes down and Nathaniel cries out with all of his heart, is there a ladder to heaven? Is there some way for God to come down from heaven and change my life? That's what it means when Jesus says to Nathaniel, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. You come to church. And I don't see the circumstances of your life, but Jesus does. He knows every quiet conversation that you've ever had. He's willing to answer the question that's asked in verse 37 and 38. What is it that you're looking for? By the way. There's lots of reasons why people don't come to Christ. They have bad experiences with Christians. They're committed to an immoral lifestyle. People love their sin intellectual dishonesty, the fear of what other people might think. But in the end, in the end, you need to experience hope. And there has to be something that overwhelms you on the inside, something that calls you away from that life of immorality and emptiness. And for each of these disciples that Jesus calls, it's going to cost them their life. By the way, John, who writes this little passage of Scripture, 
will be boiled in oil. He'll be supernaturally delivered and then banished to the island of Patmos by the wicked emperor Domitian. He'll write the book of Revelation and he'll die an old man in exile. Nathaniel, by the way, will be sliced to pieces with a knife and Matthew will be slain by a sword in the distant land of Ethiopia. And Mark will be dragged through the streets of Alexandria, literally until his body falls to pieces. Luke will be hung from an olive tree in Greece. Peter will be crucified upside down in Rome. James will be beheaded in Jerusalem. James the less will be thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. He'll survive and somehow he'll be beaten to death with a fuller's club. Andrew will be bound to an X-shaped cross in the Greek city of Hierapolis, which we were just at. They'll torture him. He'll share his faith, even while they murder him. Thomas will be run through with a lance somewhere in western India. Jude will be shot to death with arrows. Matthias will be stoned to death and then beheaded. Barnabas will be stoned to death in Salonika, and Paul will be tortured and then ultimately beheaded in Rome. They'll sacrifice their bodies and their lives in order to bring people to Christ. You see, we really don't understand what inconvenience really looks like. But one day, one day, The overwhelming joy that fills your heart and the knowledge that God has saved you and changed you will become an infectious disease that you won't be content with unless you share it with someone else. And that, my friends, is the power of personal testimony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for each person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would consider their own testimony. And Lord, there's no more powerful witness than the witness of a changed life. Not just simply changed words, but a changed life. Where you go from emptiness and sorrow, loneliness, Depression, estrangement, guilt, and you experience hope and mercy and love, fulfillment, and a brand new life. Lord, I pray for each and every person. I pray for that person who may or may not find themselves in that empty place. And they want to know Jesus. They, they want to experience that life. They want to embrace a whole new life. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would knock at the door of their heart. Lord, I pray that you would come into them. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and then confess Jesus as Lord. And that they'll experience hope and mercy, and love, and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing the first verse of Amazing Grace and take the
this old hymn that everybody knows. And think about the fresh meaning of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch I was, was lost, but now 